Today the gospel lesson comes from the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be reading from the fourth chapter, verses 1 through 11. Again, that is Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. So we got a uh, <coughs> pretty good set. We'll go with Mike too. Okay, is that better? I don't know why it is. Technology works for me until it doesn't, and then it just really. Uh, Leaves me in the, in the lurches, but that's okay. Um, well, today we got, well, what I think is sort of the essential Lenten sermon, the essential beginning of this season as we turn our attention towards what Christ has done for us as we prepare ourselves for, of course, the big day. As we turn our eyes towards the cross and past the cross to the resurrection, and through all that, there are many wonderful stories But today we begin with, well, actually we read one of them and I'll refer back to the other, but they're stories of trials and temptations and testing. And of course we also have Paul's letter to the Romans, which is his treaty on the virtues of grace and the trouble with sin. And so let's face it, anytime we start talking about sin in church, people start getting nervous. We wonder what examples is the pastor going to pull out and how many toes are going to get stepped on. I have no idea. I leave the stepping on toes to the Spirit. So I always tell people, I said, trust me, I don't know that much. I am not that intelligent that I can think up a sermon that will get as many of you as possible to feel guilty. I'm just not that good. So any guilt you feel, any, any, anything that kind of steps on you a little bit, well, I just liken that to uh, the power of the Holy Spirit, and maybe he's talking to your heart through God's Holy Scripture. The only thing I try to do is make sure that I take 
what is written in the Scripture and accurately bring that to you. And so, we're going to talk a little bit about Paul's discussion. He talks about sin and he talks about grace. And with that, first of all, we have to kind of define them. What is sin and what is grace or how does grace work? So let's start with the sin because, well, that's sometimes more fun. I see some people going, no, it's not. If it wasn't, so much of it wouldn't be happening around the world. But fun does not equal good. So we'll just stop right there. But, so let's get back to it. What is sin? Is sin, when we define sin, does that mean that you've done something wrong or that you are wrong? In other words, is sin being bad or is it doing bad? What do you think? Both. Matter of fact, I'll I'll go ahead and give you the answer for a lot of these questions. There are a lot of either-or questions today. And like oftentimes Jesus would answer the either-ors put to him, his answer was yes, which can be frustrating, but it really is at the heart of what we need to understand. You see, sometimes we separate our actions from what we desire or our action from what we are. I, myself, in counseling, have talked to many people who are in distress, who are sad, who are upset over something going on in their lives because there is something they have failed at. And I have actually said these words to them, just because you fail does not make you a failure. Has anybody ever said or heard something similar? Well, I'm going to do a radical reverse today. It absolutely does make you a failure. If you sin, you are a sinner. If you fail, you are a failure. And that sounds hard. And this, I say it in this area, not in counseling. You can't pick on somebody that's come to you for help. That's not nice. And it's not really helpful. But since right now none of us are here for counseling, we're here for a sermon, from the sermon side of things, I'm just going to tell you right out. If you failed, you are a failure. If you sin, you are a sinner. If you've done wrong, then you are wrong. And it's just that simple. And it's been happening since the very first man and woman, Adam and Eve. Now, the story we didn't read today was the story of them in the garden and the temptation. But I think it's one that we're all pretty familiar with. Adam and Eve, there might have been a snake and a piece of fruit, which, by the way, was not an apple. I know that's how we like to depict it. No one really knows what it was, but quite frankly, it doesn't matter what it was. What we do know, it was forbidden. And so this tree at the center of the garden with the forbidden fruit on it was sitting there. And even though Adam and Eve have been told you could eat anything, any of the trees, any of the plants, any of the things here that you see that you find desirable, you may take and eat and it'll be well with you. And it was well with them. God would come and walk with them in the garden and things were wonderful and it was peaceful. It was beautiful. I'd be willing to bet there were even mosquitoes there that didn't actually bite people at that time. It was a good time to be alive. Unfortunately, there was a snake, a serpent, a deceiver. Archetype of, well, we all kind of know who that was in disguise. It was the great deceiver, the great tempter, the fallen one, the devil. So the serpent, and this is one of the parts I love the most whenever I get to talk about Adam and Eve. Whose fault was it? Man's or woman's? Who messed up? 
political correct. No, the woman messed up. You, you come on, you read the story. The serpent says to Eve, are you sure God said you'll eat this and die? And she picks the fruit. And now men are like, yeah, they're not going to agree with me too much because they're wives and folks are there going, you can lay off that. And the ladies are like going, you better bring this back otherwise. See, it was the woman's fault. Actually, it was the serpent's fault. He started it. And she fell for it. But here's the part that I always laugh at because men sometimes go, yeah, it was the lady's fault. Guys, don't be too proud of that because Adam was not somewhere else in the garden. He was standing right next to her. And the snake pretty much knew if he got her, he got them both. And so they were tricked. They were bamboozled. They were tempted and they failed the test and they ate that which they were told they should not eat. And at that point, they became wrong. They became sin. Matter of fact, when Paul talks about it, he talks about all the sin that has occurred on earth, all the bad that is here. All of that is because first man, and in this case, Adam is taking on the brunt for he was the one created. Eve was brought out of his rib. We know that part of the story too. And so the first man failed and therefore all men failed. And sin would become part of our world. Matter of fact, the sin then tainted and broke our world. And it gave us the world that we live in now where, let's face it, things have not gotten better but worse. Amen? I mean, you don't have to look far to see sin. Matter of fact, you pretty much don't have to go outside of your own skin. But most of us don't like to see that sin. So we'll talk about other people for a little bit. We'll talk about the sin of others, or we'll talk about the big sins, the ones that we don't have to worry about too much, like Averse and greed and murder. Now, let me ask you this. When we talk about sin, do you think any one sin is greater than another? That's a tricky one, isn't it? Okay, show of hands. Um, and Presbyterians, I know this is hard for us. But I've never seen anybody actually called on when they raise their hand in church. Anybody here think that all sin is the same and there's no difference from one to another? Any takers on that? Okay. How about there are differences in sin and there's, there's levels of sin? Any on that? No takers on that? Well, as I said earlier, you missed the, the opening. My answers to these are going to be yes. It's yes to both. You see, the simple fact is, is if, you, if someone tells you a little white lie or they steal your car, that's going to affect you differently. If someone smacks you on the face or kills somebody you love, that is, there is a great difference between those two things, the amount of damage it does in our lives. And in that way, yes, some sins are greater. Matter of fact, in the Catholic Church, they talk about venial sins and mortal sins and those little accidental sins. Because let's face it, sometimes we even sin and aren't really knowing that we're doing it. Because, well, you know, especially if you're young and your parents ask you a question and you weren't ready for it, and they said, did you do this? And before you could even think about it, you go, no. Now, this works better if you have a brother and sister at home. Because then at least there's, there's some doubt. We only had one child, so he'd know. It's like, come on, son. You're outnumbered, you're outgunned, and there's no one else it could have been. But again, that's, that's sort of a minor one. As opposed to, you know, some of these folks that, 
you know, the Bernie Madoffs and the other folks like that who do these horrendous things that destroy lives. And I would say those are much greater sins. Where sins are the same is they get you in the same spot. All sin separates us from God. All sin is, goes against what God intended for us. When he created us, and this is part of the story of Adam and Eve, he put them in a lovely garden, a perfect place, and all was good. And it was all good until sin entered in. Until they defied God, until they did that which was forbidden. And the thing was, they only had one rule back then. I mean, God's expanded his rule book since then. But at that point, all they had to do was not eat from one tree. And they couldn't even handle that. Now, of course, we're told the wages of sin are. And does anybody know when the first death occurred in the Bible? Abel. Yes, that was the first murder. The first death occurred when God kicked them out. Because what did Adam and Eve do? As soon as they ate the fruit, they woke up and saw what? They were naked. Now, they've been naked all along. But now they realize it. Now there was shame. Now there was this fear. See, before, they were just out there. Life was good. There was nothing to worry about. So the very first thing they do is they discover that they are naked and they hide from God. And they sew together fig leaves. Now, fig trees do have impressive leaves. But I'm thinking, not exactly the nicest pantsuit one could own. And so God comes along, he confronts them, he punishes them, and as he's getting ready to kick them out of the garden, he gives them a new set of clothes. And what was that clothes made out of? Do you remember? Animal skin. And so the very first death in the Bible, God took one of the animals that, by the way, if you read carefully, when Adam and Eve, pre-sin, were in the garden, what did they eat? They ate fruits and vegetables. All the animals ate fruits and vegetables. It was a vegetarian garden, which I got to tell you, when I first had someone tell me that, I was kind of like, that's disappointing. (laughs) However, I'm thinking probably whatever vegetables and fruits God had in the garden probably beat any filet mignon, any steak I've ever had. So I'm going to trust that God's got something better planned, even though I can't perceive it at this moment. But at that moment, there had been no death. There had been nothing that preyed on another thing. And once man had sinned, once he had broken faith with God, once he had broken creation and stained it, then God killed an animal and sacrificed it so that they would have something to wear and then kicks him out. And of course, then we get to Cain and Abel later on. And, you know, it gets worse from there. So bad that eventually there was a boat and a whole bunch of animals. But that's a story for another Sunday. So Adam and Eve... We're the start. But here's the interesting part about sin, and this is where people start getting you know, questions about, like, you know, what is original sin and what does that mean? Is a baby born sinful? They're pretty innocent and pretty cute. But there is a big question. Is a baby sinful? And that answer is a hard one to go with because they're not sinful in the way that we think of sin. You see, we think of sin in the manner that Adam and Eve did. Adam and Eve had a thought, they took an action, and there was a result. They had a rule, they broke it, sin. Therefore, 
they brought it upon themselves. But once that happened, all of creation was tainted by that sin and the future sins that would come out of that. This is exactly what Paul was talking about, that all sin came from them and all are sinners. And I can tell you that little baby will eventually do something wrong, almost guaranteed. But the reason I would say yes, that all are sinners is because the world is tainted. If you had a single container of pure water, just for math's sake that we can imagine it, let's imagine a thousand gallons of pure water. And I were to dump a hundred gallons of raw sewage into it. Anybody want to take a sip of that water? Okay, how about I only dump a gallon of raw sewage into it? No? How about just a cup? How much raw sewage can I put in the pure water and y'all will still drink it? That's the problem with sin. Once there is any level of tainting, it then taints all that it is involved with. And so because of that, we are sinners, yes, because of the actions that we do, but the actions we do are because we are sinners. And we're trapped. That's why there's no amount of effort. There's no amount of good deeds. There's no amount of works that we can do that can undo what has been done since the garden. And so sin has taken over. Death has come a shadow over this world and it is now part of our lives. But then again, Paul did not just talk about sin. He was not just trying to poke his fingers in their eye. He was talking about sin so that we could understand that nature, but he also spoke of grace. Now, how does grace work? Do we get grace because we have faith in God? Or do we have faith in God because we get grace? And the answer again is, yes, it's kind of like the chicken and the egg thing. Anybody ever figure that out? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Because I figured it out. I don't care. I like barbecue chicken and I like scrambled eggs. And I really don't care which one came first. They both work for me. Don't really need to know all the details. Sometimes we just have to accept the fact that we don't know how grace works exactly with our faith, except in that it is this thing that God gives us. And because God gives us, it allows us to see God and God's works. And because we can see God's works, we can see hope, not in ourselves and what we do, but in what he did, because just as Adam brought sin into the world, as Adam brought in death, as Adam brought in this darkness and this taint, so now Jesus Christ brings in grace and mercy and healing and forgiveness. And it is through his actions. And this is what Paul is talking about. It is the sin is on us and we are sinners because we are. But we're not sinners because Christ was which is also confusing sometimes because we still mess up, do we not? We know we still transgress. We know we still trespass. We know we still don't do all that we ought to do. But because Christ did not sin, because Christ was perfect, God reckons his perfection to us as part of his plan. How does that work? I don't know. Yeah, I know that it does. 
And I know that it brings up a lot of questions. Well, if we are reckoned with Christ's grace and Christ's mercy because of Christ's goodness, then all bets are off, right? Matter of fact, Paul even later on talked about this. So then should we go on sinning that as our sin aboundeth, so will grace aboundeth? I mean, that is sort of a logical conclusion. If, you know, some is good, more is better. But Paul says, by no means. Now, you can't out God's grace, so don't try. And that's not a challenge. That's just a fact. But the fact is, as well, is that as we live into his grace, then we are healed and we are purified. And it's kind of like that tank of waste that I told you about. No one wants to drink out of that tank, but what if I had a filtration system and a purification system that I could put a couple gallons in? Would you drink that? Because you do already if you drink out of your taps. No, you know, bottle of water sales just went up in Trenton, Tennessee because the pastor. But that's sort of our life is that, yes, we're tainted with sin. Yes, we are convicted of this. But the whole time, Christ is working on us, and he's redeeming us. He has justified us so that we are already reconnected to God. And that's good news. But then day to day, not only are we justified, but then we're being sanctified. We're being purified. We're being cleansed. Moment by moment, piece by piece. So, you know, you don't want to start adding bad stuff back into the tank. There's already enough in there that none of us wanted anyways. And so we let him bring that out. Because while Adam and Eve failed their temptation, Jesus knocked it out of the park. Three for three. Now, an interesting side note on these temptations is I don't know if you, as you were listening to them, if it brought up any other things to your mind. But it's very interesting, the very things that Christ was tempted with were the very things that God had already delivered to his people. And even that wasn't enough to keep them righteous. The first temptation was what? Food. What will we eat now that you've brought us out here into the desert? Did you bring us out here to die? And God provided manna for his people. Christ said no. I don't need food. I need the word that comes from God, knowing that that which comes from God is good, knowing that God already knows our needs and assess it, and will take care of it in God's time. And so he was completely faithful to God's timing in the first temptation. So then he takes him to the pinnacle. Surely if you jump off, God will deliver you. He's promised that. How many times did God deliver the Israelites through the Red Sea and through the wilderness? Many times until they got to the promised land and even after. The story of God and Israel, God and his chosen people, God and us, is a constant story of God, again, revisiting the keeping us safe. Now, not in our way, but in his way, which is why when Jesus responds to this, it's important for us to hear Jesus didn't say, no, God won't do it. No, that's not right. What he said was, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And that requires a great deal of faith because many times when we pray for God's blessing, we pray for God's healing, we pray for God's deliverance, we add three little letters to the end of it. Now, 
or some of us are a little less ambition, we'll say soon. Christ reminds us to remember to end that prayer with, Thy will be done, and in thy good time. And then the third one, he takes him up and shows him all the world and all the power. <clears throat> kind of reminds me of Abraham when he was walking through the desert, and God said, look to the east and the west, to the north and the south. All of this I will give unto you and your descendants. God had made a promise to give, them, to give all of that to him. And when Moses walked them out of Egypt, when Joshua finally walked them into the land, they had received that not because they deserved it, not because they were doing it in trade for something, but because that is what God had promised. And so in the third temptation, the devil is trying to get Jesus to accept something from him, which is not truly his to give. And that's often the temptation we fall for the most in this world. We find value, and we find hope, and we find security and things that are none of those. There is only one source for our security. Only one source for our hope. There is only one source for our assistance in the dark night, in the scariness of this world, in the brokenness, in the sinful nature of creation. And that hope is in God the Father through Jesus Christ, His Son. That is our only hope. You see, because all other things will eventually fail and falter. And sometimes even the best intentions can lead us further into sin instead of closer to the kingdom. And so today, as we begin this season of Lent, it is a season of reflection, but I want you to reflect on both the sin and the grace. And unlike a lot of things in this world that are put up like that, they are not equal. Sin is not at the same level as grace, for the small amount of grace can wash away eons of sin. Matter of fact, the grace that was offered through Jesus Christ, not only did it wipe away the sins that came before, but it has eliminated the sins for us sitting here, and it will eliminate all of the sins and the failings until that day when we are finally sanctified and justified and brought into the kingdom. And we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Because we will be deemed righteous, not by our own actions, but because of what Christ Jesus has done for us, by the victory that he won. That is our hope, and that is our salvation. So let us celebrate and enjoy this Lenten season. Let us remember all that is required of us. But most importantly, let us remember all that has been done for us. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Gracious and holy Lord, we give you thanks and praise for the free gift of grace, for the salvation that you've worked out before us. Lord, forgive us of our sins and inequities. Heal us and restore us. Bear us close to you, and let us, Lord, seek to reflect your light in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. For we pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen.